Amen. Amen. And uh, for those of you that have been sharing stories and testimonies with me, uh, I want to continue to encourage you to do that. And uh, as the Lord shares some things with you, tonight uh, we'll be meeting by Zoom call for House of Prayer starting at 5 o'clock. So you can join into that. And uh, if you felt like the Lord uh, showed you something, gave you a word during the, the service today, that'd be a great time to, to interject that, maybe share that. We can pray into that. Excuse me. Together tonight. Um, the email link uh, should have already gone out. If you haven't received it, please let me know, and uh, we'll make sure that we get that to you. Um, Wednesday night, we're also doing a Zoom call for our A Spirit-Filled Life study. We're reading that A Spirit-Filled Life. It's a book we're reading together to talk about what a spirit-filled life looks like and how we can live that out in our daily lives. It went with a series that we were doing back in January, and so I encourage you, excuse me, got a frog in my throat today. I encourage you to get a copy of that book if you haven't. They're here at the church, and you can either pick one of those up. Um, we are limiting our office hours, so if you plan to stop by to pick one up, uh, please make sure you call ahead or get in touch with us and set up a time that you know that we're going to be here, and uh, we'll be willing to bring that out to you so that you don't even have to come into the, to the building. Uh, again, just trying to limit the number of people in and out of the building, trying to limit our exposure to uh, one another and trying to make that available. And so um, if there are things that you need here at the church, whether the uh, devotional guide this week is our last week, um, we're going to start our last plan, I should say. It lasts for two weeks, and we're going to be reading through the Gospel of Luke. So we're moving out of the Old Testament um, into the New Testament, and then for the rest of the year, we're going to be reading um, the New Testament, and there's a book called The Untold Story that we're going to be using. It's a supplemental book, um, it's kind of like a textbook that's going to give you the history, it's going to give you the geography, it's going to give you the background of what's happening as we read through the New Testament. Now, we did start reading last week. There were just a couple pages that were assigned with last week's reading. So for those of you that didn't get a copy, uh, we still have copies available. You need to make sure to get in touch with me by Tuesday. I need to mail the extra copies of that back by Wednesday so that we're not charged for those and so if you can get in touch with me this week by Tuesday, we can hold it for you. We can deliver it to you. Um, you can stop and pick it up here, however works best for you. And so um, please make sure that you um, continue to make use of, of those resources as well. And uh, I want to encourage you to keep reaching out to one another. And uh, I know many of you have been making phone calls and checking in on each other. And uh, I encourage you to let that continue through the weeks ahead and uh, the Zoom calls that we've been doing, we may do more of those prayer calls um, just to continue to encourage each other, and we'll try to get links out uh, as early as we can on those. Um, the James River Church has also been doing citywide um, prayer times, and so we're trying to send out those links as they become available to us. You can go to their Facebook page, the James River um, Church Facebook page, to find any of those links for those Zoom calls, and you can join in on those as well. Uh, these are great times for us to pray for uh, God to be at work in our city and continue to work in our city. And so we want you to make use of all of those things. And uh, I do want to say thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for your faithfulness in giving, whether you have given online, whether you have mailed your check. Some of you have dropped it uh, here at the office. Some of you have used the Dakota Land main branch. You can use the drive up, uh, put it in an envelope, mark it Jody Hansen, and uh, it'll get right to her. And so we are are grateful that you have continued to partner with us during this season and uh, helped us to be able to continue to pay our bills and our salaries and make use of that. And so we want to continue to encourage you to be faithful uh, in that in the weeks ahead. Uh, we are planning to be online for services the entire month of April. Now, if anything changes and they um, change restrictions or if God does a miracle and the coronavirus goes away, uh, we are absolutely able to adapt that, and we can be live here in the building uh, as soon as we make that available. But uh, for now, we're just planning ahead and trying to get a jump on things, and so plan to be online with us for the rest of April. Um, one last announcement before we get into the, the Word. Um, we have been interacting with the Version Bible plans, um, sharing thoughts as we've been reading the Bible together. And we want to continue to do that, but we will not be using Version after this last um, study that begins tomorrow. The book of Luke, as we read it together, you'll still have the opportunity to interact there. But we have created a page on um, a, an online platform called Slack. 
And I sent an email link. You should have received that this week. And this is a platform that you can download to your smartphone or you can use online. Our leaders have been using it for a number of months to have interaction with each other and communication with each other, share documents with each other, and have conversations when we can't be in the room together. So we're going to be using Slack to kind of navigate and give us the opportunity to share what we're learning, what we're gaining from the things that we're reading. And so I'd encourage you as we go through the, the weeks ahead, as we continue reading through the untold story, um, I want to encourage you to get on Slack and be able to use that as a resource to continue to talk about the things we're reading. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to go uh, first to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to go there in just a moment. Uh, a three weeks ago, we started this series called Trust the Story. And today is part three of that message. And unfortunately, I've had to condense everything from the Old Testament into three short sermons because I wanted us to get into the New Testament. Um, we're going to be coming back to or referencing things from the Old Testament. Um, but there's still so much I'm learning from the Old Testament that I just didn't feel like we should take the time right now to really dive into it. But what I want to assure you of is that the, the God of the Old Testament is not a different God from the New Testament. And there's a movement in our day to say that, you know, God was this angry, uh, wrathful, vengeful God in the Old Testament, but now he's a God of love and mercy. He's the same God. He was a God of love and mercy um, back in the, the Old Testament, and he's also still a God of, of wrath in the New Testament. He is a God that is just and is holy and is righteous, and he never changes. And so if we see him differently in both of those, then maybe we're misunderstanding how to interpret some of the things that we're seeing. And so that's why we've taken a step back. We started to look at the geography. We started to look at the culture. And we want to make sure that we're paying attention to these nuances to make sure that we're understanding uh, what's in front of us. The, the untold story is one of the supplements that uh, I've made available to you. And I've also, over the last couple of weeks, told you about the BEMA podcast. Um, the Bema podcast is a great resource if you want to get more information about the Old Testament. They will encourage you to have a Bible in front of you so that as it's, a, it's literally a Bible study. They're taking you through the scriptures and bringing light to the scriptures, helping you understand how this scripture connects to this scripture and how this story connects to this story and why the, the culture of that day helps us understand what we're reading right here in a way that we wouldn't have understand understood in our English translation. And so it is a great resource. It is not meant to uh, be the only thing you read. It is meant to be a supplement to the Bible that you're already reading. And so I want to encourage you to make use of those. And uh, a lot of the things that I've shared over these last three weeks and uh, even more, again, today has come from the Bama Cop podcast. It's come from the After Class podcast, another one I've referenced in the past. And uh, just a lot of insight that these guys have in Old Testament language and history and culture that I do not have. And so, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, right here is the overview of God's story. We want to trust the story that God has been revealing from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is what we would call the preface to God's story. Creation is good. God has created order out of chaos, but the world was thrust back into chaos. And now God is looking for a partner to help bring order back to the chaos. And the story is unfolding before us. But keep in mind, God knows the end from the beginning. And sometimes people might wonder, well, if he knows the end from the beginning, why doesn't he just skip ahead to it? Why do we have to go through this whole process? Because as we've talked about, God wants us to know him. And in order to know him and know his plan and know his ways, for us as Westerners, that means give us the facts, give us the data. You just tell us, we'll put it in our brains, and then we'll know your plan, we'll know your story. That's not how God operates, and that's not how these Easterners would have operated back in the Bible days. For them to know God's story, they had to experience it. 
The very word God says for know, the word yada that we've talked about, is to experience. And so it's a cerebralness that's taking place, not just an intellectual thing in your brain, but it's an experiential type of thing. And so um, God in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is outlining that. He's teaching us that. Then we move into Genesis 12, and we get introduced to the guy named Abraham. God has found a man, he's found a family that he's going to now partner with to unfold his story. And this family is learning to trust God, okay? They're growing, they're being tested, and then they're growing in their understanding. They are not a perfect family. None of us are the perfect family. But God says there's something about the character of this man. I think we get a great glimpse of the character of Moses when he chooses his wife, Sarah. Sarah is not only... um, her father's passed away, so there's no way for her to be able to take care of herself. And Sarah, the genealogy tells us, is barren. For some reason, we know now Sarah is barren. And yet, Abraham chooses this barren wife, even though as the, the firstborn son, he could have chosen one of the two sisters. But he, gave, he chose Sarah himself and gave the one that was going to bear children to his brother. And so, we see that again when Lot and Abraham need to separate because there's not enough fields for their shepherds. And so he allows Lot to choose first. I mean, this guy is like, no, you choose first and I'll take what's less. And so, of course, Lot chooses the best land and Abraham gets what's left. But Abraham has such trust in God that that he's able to live like that. You know, the Bible says Abraham believed God and God credited it to him to his righteousness. And we, a lot of times, point back just to the story of um, Isaac, when God, tr- or Abraham trusted God for Isaac to be born, trusted God by putting Isaac on the altar. And that's true, but that's not the only time that Abraham trusted God. By, by saying to Lot, hey, you go whichever way you want to go, and I'm going to go a different way, what God is saying in that moment is, hey, you can trust me. And Abraham is like, God, I do trust you. I'm going to let Lot choose the best of the land. And so we see this in Abraham, his hospitality, his responding to the needs of those who are oppressed. Um, This is a guy that God has said, I'm going to take my plan and I'm going to develop it through you. And so Genesis 12 through 50 is us being introduced to this family and uh, seeing who they are and understanding who they are. Then in Exodus, we begin the, the narrative that God is about to tell. So in Exodus, at the beginning of the book, this family is now enslaved in Egypt. God has to find a way to get his people out of Egypt and bring them to the land that he promised to them. Not only that, but he has to find a way once he brings them out of Egypt to get Egypt out of them so that they don't operate in the same type of mindset. We've talked about the narrative being um, like a tale of two kingdoms. So you have the kingdom of God, and you have the kingdom of the world. Well, the kingdom of God, sometimes in Hebrew literature or in the Old Testament, is referred to as the kingdom of shalom. Shalom is a a Hebrew word, and it's more than just peace. It's like a steadiness. It's a foundation. It's a peace. It's a security. It's a lot of stuff wrapped up in this one word, shalom. And uh, I don't know if you've ever in your prayer time just prayed shalom over someone. But um, God understands that. Even if we don't fully understand what shalom means, God understands it. And there is such a peace that comes by praying that over uh, situations and needs. But then the kingdom of the world is also known as the kingdom of empire. These two kingdoms do not overlap. They are opposite kingdoms. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And I think sometimes in our democratic republic, we try to make them overlap. There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics or in voting or running for office or supporting things. I think as a citizen, it's a great thing that we need to do. But we need to understand the kingdom of God is not political. And the kingdom of God does not need policy in order to advance. The times that the kingdom of God has advanced throughout human history, there were actually wicked kings on the thrones. And so we have to make sure that we do not operate under the kingdom of empire. The kingdom of empire uses force. It uses fear. It uses coercion. It uses, and anytime there's an empire kingdom, someone gets oppressed. 
Even right here in this democratic republic that we call a free nation, there is no such thing as a human free nation because someone always gets oppressed. And the kingdom of God recognizes this, and it is not a kingdom of force. It's a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of trust. It's a kingdom of invitation. It's a kingdom that lifts the oppressed out of where they are. It's a kingdom that puts us all on one, one plane, if you will. Not socialism, but on one plane before God. We care for one another's needs. And we see this in the response of the early church in the book of Acts, selling their possessions, making sure everyone had enough. These are things that are found in the Old Testament. This is a part of what they were called to. And I wish I had all afternoon to sit here and talk to you about that and Maybe we do. We don't have anywhere else to go, so we could just sit here all afternoon and I could just talk to you. And I won't even know when you fall asleep or walk away because, in fact, right now I'm just speaking by faith that you're even there. And so, I'm not going to do that, by the way. We come to Moses in the book of Exodus, and Moses is born. Moses is the guy that God's going to use to bring his people out. And he spends 40 years in Egypt in the palace if you don't know the story, you're going to have to go back and read it. Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3. Get the story of Moses. Read what happens here in, in the book of Exodus. He's in the palace, and God is using him. He is training him. He's giving him things that Moses is going to need later on when he leads the people out. Now, after that, Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And sometimes people refer to this as, uh, you know, Moses' quiet years or Moses' you know, uh, because he killed the Egyptian, he didn't do it God's way, God sent him into a wilderness. God is using the wilderness for 40 years to train Moses equally as a shepherd. Okay? He is training him in the ways of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Shalom. Shepherds lead differently than Pharaoh's lead. Pharaoh is empire. Shepherds are Shalom. Shepherds don't use their staff to beat the sheep, to force the sheep. They don't use fear on the sheep. They use their voice on the sheep to lead their sheep. They use their staff on predators. And so we want to make sure that we understand God is totally preparing Moses for this moment. And then he brings him to Mount Sinai, or what the Bible sometimes refers to, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And he has an encounter with him on a burning bush, at a burning bush, and says, go to Pharaoh and be my message. That is going to be repeated throughout the Scripture. God does not want a people to tell other people the message. He wants a people that will be the message. Yes, we also need to say the message. Moses said the message to Pharaoh, but we have to first and foremost continue to be that message, and we'll talk more about that here in a bit. So then God uses the plagues in Egypt as a way of revealing himself as Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God, sometimes translated in your Bible, the Lord. That is Yahweh. And Pharaoh's like, I don't know this Yahweh. I don't, he is a polytheist. He knows El. The word El is like a God, a force, a power. But these gods are mean. And you worship a lot of different gods because these gods are in fighting with each other even. And so you want to you want to side with all of them because whichever God is winning at the time, you want to make sure you're on his graces. You know, the God of the sun, the God of the rain, the God of the harvest, the God of frogs. I mean, you want all of these gods on your side. So you want to make sure that you are worshiping all these different forces. And so when, when Moses comes and says, Yahweh, this creator God, this personal God, this God that is above all other gods, this God that wants a relationship with you, this God that controls everything, that put everything in order, Pharaoh's like, huh? He has no paradigm for this. So God is telling a story to Pharaoh, helping him and the Egyptians to learn it. And I wish... I had the time to go through this. I shared a, a book with you last week. Um, and right now, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. It's called The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. The Exodus You Almost Passed Over by Rabbi David Foreman. And he goes through um, chapter by chapter, plague by plague, and he breaks down what this story is. It's a great story showing us how God is trying to reveal himself to Pharaoh. And it answers some of the questions we've had about how, why, you know, God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Is it like he's setting Pharaoh up for failure? If you want the rest of that story, you're going to have to read the book. 
So God delivers his people through these plagues, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. Remember, the mountain where Abraham encounters God, God now brings the people of Israel. And he literally performs a wedding ceremony at Mount Sinai. The parts of a Jewish wedding ceremony are all right here. He's talking about them as a treasured possession. He's talking about them coming out of Egypt. He's talking about them uh, basically as his betrothed. He promised himself back to Abraham, and now he's come to bring them to himself, okay, to bring them to where he is. And so what we have here is a time of cleansing, that the bride would cleanse herself. So we see that at the foot of the mountain. And then there was a hoopah. If you attended Travis and Sam Wiff's wedding, we talked a lot about the hoopah because they had that as a part of their ceremony. It's a Jewish thing, and it symbolized the presence of God, a cloud. And what do we have at the foot of Mount Sinai? The presence of God is a cloud over the people. Then we need to have a ketubah. A ketubah is like our vows. It's a wedding contract. And we have a ketubah. We have two tablets, both containing the Ten Commandments. I know that in our English uh, pictures, we like to put five commandments on each tablet because we think that's what we do. But this is actually one for the bride, one for the groom. All ten, This is the ketubah. This is the vows we're making to each other today. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. We're coming together. And he gives them this commission in Exodus chapter 19. I didn't put this on the screen. So if you want to write it down, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, it takes you through this story. But God, in essence, is calling them a kingdom of priests. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens in the book of Exodus. And then God begins to give them these parameters for what the priesthood is all about. Because remember, he didn't say, you're going to have some priests. He says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. So the book of Leviticus that we think is pointless becomes a very important book to understand what it is to be a part of the priesthood. Now, the Bema podcast does a great job of illustrating this, but I'm going to just give you four points that come from the book of Leviticus. But first, I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 2, because this isn't just to the, the people of Israel. Peter says to this to the church in Asia, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Don't let that word holy fool you. That word holy is not a pattern of living as much as it's called holy means to be set apart. It means we are God's people. We've been set apart as a possession to him. Now, how we live reflects who he is. But we sometimes misunderstand that word holy and sometimes misapply it in our language. We are God's special possession to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And our calling as a royal priesthood, as we find in the book of Leviticus, is this. One, it's to put God on display. We have been called to be the message, to put God on display everywhere we go. Everything we do, everything we say, we are putting him on display for the world. And we like to boil this down into like a list of, you know, avoid sexual immorality and don't lie and don't cheat, and don't steal and, you know, don't do these things. And yet all of those are true. But sometimes we miss the most important aspect of God's character and his nature. And that is he loves us. And we need to be making sure that we are that message, that everywhere we go, we're not just telling people, hey, clean up your act, but hey, there's a God that wants a relationship with you, and guess what? He did everything to already clean up your act so that now you can be in relationship with him. And as you learn to walk in this relationship with him, he is going to clean up your act, but it's already been done because of what Christ has done for us. That's what it's about to be the message everywhere we go. We don't have to live in fear because we we have peace. We have shalom. We carry the presence of God. We are being the message. Our lives should not be in chaos. We are bringing order to the chaos. And that's what this message, this Levitical priesthood is all about. The second one is to help people navigate their atonement. Atonement is just what 
Christ has done for us. He died on the cross. His blood was shed for our sins so that we can be made right with God. Our job is everywhere we go to tell people how they can be made right with God. By the way, you cannot be made right with God by stop, don't, but stop sinning. Stop sinning. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't lie. Don't cheat. That's not how you're made right with God. We are made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ by admitting we've broken God's law, by admitting we have no chance of making ourselves right with God, and then by accepting what Christ did on our behalf. Now, yes, out of this relationship we're about to develop, our lives are going to be transformed. But we sometimes we put that cart before the horse and we try to get people to stop behaving certain ways before they've come into relationship with God, before they have the presence of God in their lives to even empower them to live differently. We need to be able to explain to people how they come into relationship with God. The third thing is to intercede on behalf of others. We have been called to intercede on behalf of others, to bring people together. I believe God is looking for every possible way to get people into the kingdom. He is not going to violate his own standard. There is only one way, and it is only through Jesus. But we sometimes as the church put stumbling blocks in the way of people. We try to get them to clean up their act first, or maybe we don't think they've cleaned up their act fast enough. And so we put all of these stumbling blocks in front of people, Instead of letting God clean them up as God works in their lives, the same way he's worked in our lives. And so we're interceding on behalf of others. We're, we're trying to bring them to God. And uh, that's what we see with Moses on the mountain. We'll talk about that here in a second. And that's what we see with, the, with Jesus in the New Testament. He does that for us. To The fourth one that's on the, the list there, is to distribute resources to those in need. The Levitical priesthood was all about making sure everybody had enough. So people would bring their surplus so that everybody had enough. And the priest was meant to distribute it. Again, I alluded to the book of Acts. When, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and the church was ex exploding, everyone began to sell their possessions to make sure that everyone had enough. This is so vital for us. This is something that gets overlooked by and large in the evangelical body of Christ, that we make sure we're distributing needs so that everybody has enough. I cannot emphasize this enough. Jesus said it over and over. He came to serve the poor. He came to serve. If you want to, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, serve the poor. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Make sure everyone has enough. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, it doesn't mean don't love yourself. It doesn't mean don't take care of your needs. In fact, it doesn't even mean don't splurge. Yeah, you need to splurge once in a while. You need to to buy something that's, you know, just because, hey, I got a promotion at work. I'm going to buy myself something nice. I'm going to go out to a fancy meal. I'm going to order a ribeye. It doesn't mean that we don't ever celebrate. We have to know how to celebrate. There are feasts that call us to celebrate. But we also need to be a people that, by and large, we live out our lives knowing when to say when, knowing when enough is enough so that everybody has the same amount. And so, these things get repeated over and over in the Scripture. Now, we're at Mount Sinai, this wedding ceremony between God and his people. And as you know, Moses is up on the mountain getting the ketubah. He's getting the covenant, the vows between God and his people. And in the midst of it, his people are down at the bottom of the mountain committing adultery. I mean, if you, if you imagine this as a wedding ceremony, this would be like the groom finalizing the ketubah only to turn around and see his bride committing adultery with his best man. And God is furious. So now we know why when Moses comes down the mountain, he doesn't smash the tablets because he's angry. He smashes the tablets because they're, they're now void. I mean, what could too, but now you have violated what God has done. And so he smashes the tablets. He grinds up the, the calf. And uh, there's a whole story there, too. But he goes back up on the mountain, and God's going to destroy the people. He's like, I'm going to destroy the people. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And you remember what Moses does? No, God, do not do that. Put their sin on me. He intercedes for the people. This is so 
awesome. He becomes like Jesus for the people. He says, you strike me. Let it fall on me. So God relents. Okay? Now we know 3,000 people died, even though, um, and then we know that that alludes to the day of Pentecost where 3,000 get saved. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for bringing that out to us a couple weeks ago. But um, God then just picks up where he left off. It's like he's totally forgiven them, and then he continues to write the ketubah. This is such a picture of the grace of God and the reminder to us that he is doing whatever it takes to bring us into right relationship with him. Now, yes, this is not an excuse to sin. This is not an excuse to live frivolously, but this is an excuse to say you have a God that is pursuing you, and this is the God of the Old Testament. He loves you. He wants you to be rooted and grounded and assured of his love, and he wants you to keep pressing in. When you fail a test, he wants you to repent. He wants you to confess your sin, but he wants you to continue to press in to know him because as as we find out here in the book of Deuteronomy, so basically, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers tell us the story about God and his people. And then we come to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is like the recap. So basically, Moses is saying to the people, hey, uh, we are about to go into the promised land. And by we, I mean them, because Moses isn't going. But you're about to go into the promised land. So let me recap what we've learned in the desert. And so he begins to recap here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, this becomes a prayer that the Jews will repeat often. Okay, they will repeat this several times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord our God. Okay, so it's that creator, unique God, that force that created all the world. He is the three in one, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That seems like a, such a, an oxymoron if you try to understand it in your human mind because the Lord, our plural God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So what they have learned in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, is they've learned that they are to love God. Remember, they've been called into a marriage relationship with God. So they're to love him. They're to be affectionate toward him. They're to be loyal toward him. They're to be sacrificing toward him. They're to serve him the way that a, a wife and a husband serve one another. They're in relationship together. And he says, the Lord your God, I want you to serve him, love him with all your heart, with all your soul. This word heart is the word for the inner man, the, the, maybe the secret man, the thing that's unknown. It's with your will. This is a choice. This is an action. When we think of heart, we think of emotion. But that's not how the Hebrew would, would view this. This would be the inner man that maybe no one else sees, nobody knows. Love God with the secret you, with your choices, with your decision, with an act of your will. Then also love him with your soul with your emotions, your desires, your appetites, with yourself. And then this word that we translate strength. This is a tough word to translate. In the Hebrew, it's actually the word very, very, V-E-R-Y, very. In fact, in the New Testament, when some writers will translate this, they will actually not just translate it strength, they'll say mind and strength. Because it's not just your physical force. It literally means your very your abundance, your, much, your muchness, your force, your greatly. And so it's almost like everything that you are. You've got to learn to worship God. This is what they learned in the wilderness. Remember God's promise throughout the word. We started today with a song. You will be our God. We will be your people. You will find that phrase repeated from Genesis to Revelation. You will be our God. We will be your people. That's his story. He's calling us into this relationship with him. And it, failing one test doesn't mean you're out. I mean, it's not like God tested them in the wilderness, and as long as they passed most of the tests, they got to go into the promised land. That's how we view it. 
But God says, no, every test is a chance for you to see where you are in your obedience to me. Every test that you take is a chance to see how you can grow in your obedience with me. Every test you take is a chance for you to learn something about who I am. God is on a journey with us. He has already made us right with himself through what Christ did for us. And as we are tested, just like they were tested, it's all about the process. It's all about experiencing God, knowing him experientially and working our way towards who he is and carrying out our full, 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 fourfold calling as a priesthood. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, we're reminded, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know that what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Now, again, I've told you what this testing is all about, but he, he, wants, you to, he wants us humble, meaning he wants us to know he's our source. I go to work, I get a paycheck, he's my source. If I lose my job, he's my source. In this time of uncertainty right now, we need to know this more than ever. We need the humility to say, you know what, I'm going to take precautions. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to socially distance myself. I'm going to do all of the things that I need to do. But you know what? He is my refuge, and he is my strength, and he is my source. We need to walk in a level of humility, not a level of pride that says, I don't need to wash my hands. I don't need to do these things. I, don't, I have God. No, 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 no. Humility says, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what I'm being asked to do by the leaders around me. But at the same time, I'm going to put my trust in God. I don't have to get upset that Governor Nome might not be doing what I want or President Trump isn't doing what I want or the Democrats in Congress aren't doing what I want because I have confidence in him. He's my supply. And we need to make sure that we're being that message right now to a world that is watching us. Now, I wish I had time. Looks like I got about eight minutes. It, I wish I had time to take you all the way back through the book of Exodus to show you all the tests that the people of Israel went through. Um, you know, apart from sounding like a broken record, the Bema podcast is a great resource. I also have a resource in my office. It's a DVD library that's called um, That the World May Know. And it's put out by Focus on the Family. It does the same thing. Old Testament and New Testament takes you to the lands of the Bible, lets you see it. So for those of you that are like, eh, I can't listen, but you could watch, um, I could make those available to you. Again, you just have to find a way to, to set it up um, or send me an, um, a message, and I can send you the link on where you can purchase those um, if you're watching from somewhere far away. But in the books of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, let's look at just the first test. Exodus chapter 15, they are not yet at Mount Sinai, so now we've gone back in time. And Moses led the Israelites from the Red Sea. They just finished worshiping and having a great worship service because the horse and the rider got thrown into the sea. The Egyptians were drowned, and they danced and celebrated. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert, but after three days in the desert, you get pretty thirsty. I don't know that as Americans, we can fully comprehend what it means to be thirsty. I'm a little thirsty right now. My mouth is dry. But we don't know thirst. And when you are thirsty, you are cranky. And so the Israelites are, are right here at this place. They come to this place called Mara. They find a well. Now, we don't know if Mara was called Mara after, if Mara was called Mara before. We don't know. But they come to this place. They find a well. There's hundreds of thousands of them, one well. The first bucket that comes up, bitter. So they have one well. It's bitter water. The people grumble against Moses. What are we going to drink? Moses cries out to the Lord. Okay, here's what's in their heart. Now, have a little compassion. Three days in the desert, they're thirsty, they're, they're just getting to know this God. They do, I mean, yeah, they had the plagues, but for those of you that are, are maybe hard on the Israelites, let me ask you how you've reacted over this wilderness season of being quarantined, being low on toilet paper, being low on some supplies, maybe not getting our test results back fast. I mean, how, what, mm, 
So you know what it's like to be an Israelite now, okay? And what's coming out of you in these moments? Well, my boss isn't being safe enough, or this person's not doing enough, or uh, now you know what's happening here. They're complaining. And so the Lord, look what he does. He doesn't even address it yet. Shows him a piece of wood, throws it into the water. It became fit to drink. So the next verse says, There the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction for them and put them to the test. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened. But here's what we know. The water is made fresh. The people are thirsty. And there's hundreds of thousands of people that need to draw water from one well. We believe that the, the issued ruling has something to do with how we're going to get water. Okay? Uh, right now, in the kingdom of empire, the strong survive. So the strong push their way to the front of the line. I'm getting first. I don't think that's the way God's kingdom, kingdom operates. And so I believe he issues a ruling, whatever that is, maybe that the elderly go first, maybe the poor go first, maybe the crippled go first, maybe the lame go first. Everyone's going to get enough. And he puts them to the test to see if they're going to do it his way. Now, I don't know about you, but if they're thirsty enough to grumble, are they going to pass this test? And I believe they did because then at the end of it, he says this, the verse says this, then they came to Elim. Now, this is another few mile travel. This isn't just like right around the corner. Okay, this is another journey after they've gotten their water, they've gotten their fill, they've filled up their containers, they go around the corner, if you will, a little bit farther than that, and there are 12 springs and 70 palm trees. One spring for each of the 12 tribes. See, when you do it God's way, God's going to supply. Now, you may have to wait a few extra days. You may have to wait a few extra years. You may have to wait through a season. But what's going to come out of it? Now, if yuck comes out of you during that test, don't grumble. Don't complain. Remember the Bible tells us in, in Philippians chapter 2, do not complain about anything. But in everything, give thanks to God. When you complain, you are not shining like stars in the universe. People are not looking at you as the message. And that's what happens. Then, if we had time to go into it, we'd go into Exodus chapter 16. They grumble again because they don't have food. And this time, God provides food for them. He provides quail for them to gather. He provides manna for them to gather. And he gives them, again, specific instructions on how to gather the manna so that everyone will have enough. And the interesting verse at the end of that chapter, whether they gathered little or whether they gathered a lot, Everyone had enough. Each person was supposed to gather a certain amount based on the number of people in your family. And no matter how much one person gathered, everybody had enough. Now, some people failed this test because we know they didn't follow the instructions. Some of it tried to keep it overnight and it got full of maggots. And some of them went out on the Sabbath when he told them not to go out. Um, but in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses again alludes back to this test. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's telling them, I want you to learn that you are led by my voice, not by my force. He doesn't want to be a God that makes them be afraid that he's going to smite them. He wants them to be a people that are led by his voice. Then we come to Exodus chapter 17, and again, they're without water, and again, they grumble. And this time, their grumbling is, Moses says, I don't know the wording exactly, but they are putting the Lord to the test. Now, God would be totally justified in this moment to just smite them, to just be like, you know what? You failed the test, boom. But what he does, it's so interesting because Moses, if you go back and read in Exodus chapter 17, Moses is like, they're mad enough they're going to stone me, God. And the next thing God says to him is, Moses, go stand in front of the people. <laughs> and so I just love it when <laughs> you go to God and you're like, God, the people are going to stone me. Go stand in front of them. Are you sure that's what I should do? 
And then he takes the 70 elders and they go for a travel because from where they are in Rephidim, they are going to travel to Mount Horeb. The Israelites are going to be able to see where they're going, but they go there and Moses strikes the rock two times so that water flows out of it. This is so important because the people of God now have put him to the test and he is letting Moses, in essence, strike the rock so that water can flow. That is so symbolic of God saying, I'm going to take your punishment and I'm going to let Moses strike me on your behalf and water is going to flow enough for you. That is a, such a profound story. And it also shows us why later when God tells Moses to strike a different rock. He says to Moses, he doesn't tell him to strike it, he says, speak to it. Again, he wants us to live by the voice. He wants to teach that to the people. And Moses is angry. There's so many reasons he could be angry in this moment, but he strikes the rock. And God lets water flow so that the people have it, but he tells Moses, you cannot enter the promised land because you did not regard me as holy, set apart in the eyes of the people of Israel. You were not led by my voice. You didn't teach them to be led by my voice. You struck me again, or you struck a different rock to supply when I already took the striking. It's such a profound and powerful thing, and uh, I wish I had time to go into all of it. I hope I've whet your appetite a little bit for um, what is coming and what uh, you know, what the Old Testament is all about. Go back and read through some of them. I'm going to take a couple extra minutes. I know that we're already past 1130 just to cover two more scripture passages with you because I want you to understand this because the greatest test to come is the test of very, to love God with all of our strength. I mean, we've seen loving him with our will, with our choices. When we don't have water, will we just wait on him and say, no, I know, I, I know I'm thirsty, but I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to press in. I'm going to know that he's got something around the corner. Uh, I'm not going to demand a feast in the wilderness. I'm going to trust him even with my desires, with my soul. I'm going to love him that way. But will I love him with my very? When they come into the promised land, this is the greatest test they're about to face. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse number 10 says this, When the Lord brings you into the land that he swore to give your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land large with flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of slavery. This is the test of very when everything goes well, when you have more than enough, are you still going to be able to live with just enough? Are you still going to be able to fulfill our, our Levitical priesthood role of making sure that everyone has? Or are we going to be like, no, I have more than them because I worked hard and they're lazy? Or are we going to find a way, no, I'm going to make sure I supply for them because anything I have is because of him. It's not my hard work that's given me this. It's God. Everything. I'm going to love him with all of my very. And as we get back into a time in the months ahead, when we get back to a time of normal, but I believe there's no normal coming. Okay, we're going to find a new normal. But when we get into that time and everything feels safe again, are we going to continue to love God with the lessons we're learning right now in this moment? This is the, the toughest test. And when, when the children of Israel, when Isaiah comes to prophesy to them later on, before they go into the Babylonian captivity, God comes to them. Please hear this. He comes to them and he begins uh, in Isaiah chapter 5. He begins this analogy of a vineyard. And he's like, I've come to my vineyard and my vineyard doesn't have any grapes. My vineyard is not producing a harvest. And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, or in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, and he heard cries of distress. What does God want from his people? A royal priesthood, a people that are putting him on display, 
a people that are declaring how to be made right with him, a people that are living that out, a people that are interceding on behalf of every person. No one's too far gone. I want everyone in the kingdom. I'm going to trust that God's going to open the door for that one. And a people that are distributing resources so that everyone might have enough, a people who know when to say enough is enough. Yeah, they know how to splurge and celebrate too. They're not going to just live in poverty and as a pauper and never have fun with their families, but they're going to know how to say enough. And they're going to know when to say when. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 58, I challenge you today to read through Isaiah chapter 58 because the people of God are saying, hey God, we're fasting. Why aren't you seeing our fasting? What is it we need to repent of? And God says, you know what you need to repent of? It's not your sexual immorality. It's not even your um, dirty movies that you're watching. It's not even that you're being frivolous with your time. It's not that you don't attend church enough. It's not that you're not bringing the right sacrifices. You know what you're doing? You're coming before me for the holy days, but then you're mistreating your workers. You're not caring for the poor. You're not caring for the needy. You're not meeting the needs of the oppressed. And it almost seems from Isaiah 58 that the reason these people are going into captivity is God's like, you're not displaying who I am at all. And the challenge to us today, yeah, let's fast, let's pray, but stay away from that message that this is the wrath of God on our world because of abortion. This is the wrath of God on our world because of homosexuality. This is the wrath. Maybe this is the wrath of God on our world because of the church needing to to restore them to their rightful place, to say, you know what, be my priesthood. Make me known to all the peoples of the earth. I don't think I don't think God's in the death of the righteous. And so I want to call us to read through Isaiah chapter 58 today. Tonight for House of Prayer, we're going to use Isaiah 58 as a guide. We're going to pray through this chapter together tonight and make that our guide for the time of prayer tonight. We may pray into other areas as well, but read through it this afternoon. Prepare your hearts for it. I want to show you this list one more time. This is, again, the reminder to us that as priests, we're to be putting God on display. We're to help people navigate their atonement, their rightness with God, to intercede on behalf of others and to distribute resources to those who are in need. And I promise you over the next months as we study the New Testament together, as we start reading in Luke tomorrow, we're going to allude back often to these messages in the Old Testament. I wish we had had more time to cover it today. Thanks for being patient and sitting and uh, staying with me for a little bit extra long today. Hopefully lunch didn't burn and hopefully you're ready to go to have that. But come back to these passages, Exodus 14, 15, and 16 again. Um, Exodus 19 and 20, read those again. Isaiah 58, and let God just marinate these words in your heart over these next few weeks. And so let me pray for you, and then we're going we're gonna to cut off the live stream. And so, Father, I say thank you. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you for the way that you have opened up access for us to come back into relationship with you. God, thank you that we were once not a people, but now you've made us a people. You've brought us into relationship with yourself. God, you've made us a people, a royal priesthood. I pray especially for us as Restoration Church today. Holy Spirit, help us to live as royal priesthood, making you known teaching people how to be made right with you, bringing them back into relationship with you, interceding on their behalf, not letting the the things that we see with our eyes deter us, but God, believing you're going to make a way for everyone to come into the kingdom. God, interceding like Moses, being willing, God, to take upon ourselves the sacrifices that need to be made to bring others into the kingdom. And God, ultimately making sure that we're distributing to everyone that's in need, making sure that everyone has enough. So Holy Spirit, I pray, put these things deep in our hearts. May they transform our lives today and in the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.